Our final week of our series, Has It Been Good, Living Beyond the Grave? Amen? Amen. I want to encourage all of you if, you, if you missed any services, or even if you made it to most of them, to get back into the app and listen again. It's one of those things where, as I've gone through this now, uh, this is the fifth week, thinking about where we started, thinking about the progression to get to where we are this morning, it's just been an amazing blessing for me personally, and uh, I want everybody to get all that, uh, thank you, sir, all that the Lord has for us in this series, just to slow ourselves down and really try to hear from God. <clears throat> this series has been about not waiting until we get to this point to start living beyond the grave. Start thinking about eternity. When we started, we talked about people who see the grave, they hear the call of God, but they make a decision and say, you know what, I'm not going to that casket, I'm not going to that grave, there will be no laying down of my old life, I'm going to live on this side of the grave, I'm going to try to have as much joy and as much fun, I'm going to try to find a full life on this side, and we talked about the challenges with that, and where that inevitably ends you. We talked about another group of people, the second group of people who say, you know what, without God there's no hope, I've got to get to that casket, I know I have to lay my old life down, I know that it's something I have to do, and they come to the grave, they come to the casket, they get in, they say, Lord, I'm laying down my old life, but then they live there. They live in the grave. They live in the casket. They never get up and start living beyond the grave. They just lay down their old life, but there's no new life, and there's no new hope. And ultimately, that third group of people that we've been talking about is what we've been encouraging all of us to be, people that would say, I know I'm not going to find life and hope and love and joy and restoration and forgiveness over here. I know I have to come to the cross, I have to come to the grave. We get into that grave, but we expect to be resurrected. We came out of Easter learning about resurrection. We expect to come out of that and into new life. That group of people says, I see the grave, but I also see some hope on the other side of it. I see life on the other side of it. I see joy on the other side of it. Coming to the grave is not easy for anybody. It don't matter who you are, don't matter how you were raised, laying your life down is difficult. Jesus says, I lay my life down, but I take it back up again. And the same spirit that was in him is in us, all who believe, to take life back up and begin living it. Our two prayers for this series have been, number one, Lord, let us beware of a Christianity where you do all the dying, right? We don't want to be the types of Christian that says, Jesus lays his life down. Jesus overcomes sin. Jesus has the victory. No, no, no. We have to die too. Things that we want have to be laid down. Things that we used to do, we cannot do them anymore. We have to die. Relationships that are unhealthy, we have to let them die. Our Christianity is not a Christianity where Jesus does all the dying. We are Christians, which means we're like Christ. If he did some dying, we need to do some dying. Amen? Amen. So that was number, prayer number one. Prayer number two was, Lord, let us beware of a Christianity where you do all the living beyond the grave. Jesus rose from the grave for 40 days, walked around eating with people, talking to people, preaching to people, loving on people. He lived after the grave, and the Bible says that he went to be with the Father at the right hand of the Father, and he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Why is he doing all the living beyond the grave? Our lives should be more full and more joyful and more destined and more purposeful after coming to Christ than they ever were before. People should not look at us and say, man, they look like zombies. I'll never give my life to the Lord because I don't want to be like them. You should be happier. Somebody should be telling you, man, what happened to you? There's joy on your face. There's a glow. There's something different about you. That's when you know you're living beyond the grave. It's not an easy thing to do, though. Somebody say amen. 
Many of us have been saved for months. Some of us have been saved for years. Some of us have been saved for decades. Some of us can't even remember when we weren't saved. However, it's not easy to die and start living again. No matter what testimony you hear, there's always trial. There's always struggle. There's always difficulty. But good Lord, thank God that he told us that that was going to be the case. I want to quickly look at our part. Say our part. Say my part. Because when we say our part, it's like, oh, it's our part, but y'all going to do it. Y'all going to do it. When it's your part, you know there's something you have to do. Romans chapter 4, verse 16 says, Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. This story is telling you about Abraham and telling you about his faith and telling you that even when there was no reason to hope, he hoped. Even when his body was already dead, he believed that life could come from it. Not because of something that he was going to do, but because of he who made the promises. Verse 17 said, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. One of the things that I love to do is I believe in you guys. I believe in the power of God in your life. I believe in the power of God in my life. When we look around at each other, we need to be speaking more life into each other. You are going to have destiny. You are going to have a strong marriage. You are going to go to college. You are going to have a career and not just a job. You are going to have love. You are going to have restoration, right? We need, God says that he calls the things that do not exist as though they did. He's not just making stuff up so you feel better. He already sees the end. He knows that these things are possible. I love that about him. He gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as those they did. Verse 18 said that Abraham believed contrary to hope, in hope he believed. Does that make sense? Contrary to hope, in hope he believed. There's absolutely no reason why something good should come out of this, but because you know the one who is good, you believe that something good is going to happen, right? You ain't got no job, but you're planning a vacation next year. That's contrary to hope, right? You have no reason to think you're going anywhere. You don't have a job. You don't have any savings. You've never been anywhere in your life. But contrary to hope, you believe in hope. Because Jesus says, you know what? I'll set you free. I'll bless you. I'll give you the desires of your heart. Abraham said, contrary to hope. When people tell you, why are you still, why are you still doing that? Why are you still going to that church? Why are you still thinking God's going to restore your marriage? Why are you still thinking your kids are going to make it? Don't tell me about what's not going to happen. Contrary to hope, whatever you see with your eyes, I see something different. That's our part. The last one, verse 20 and 21 said, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. 
We cannot waver at the promises of God. We have to believe what God tells us is going to happen, is actually going to happen. And the ultimate faith is this. If you believe with all your heart and you do not waver that what he promised he's able to do, he promised me that when I die, I will be raised from dead. He promised me that I'm going to spend eternity in heaven with my children. He promised me that my wife is going to enter into the gates of heaven and we are going to be together again, which means I don't care what happens in this earth. I'm going to do everything I can to love her, everything I can to love my children. But we see tragedy happen. We see pastors like Greg Laurie lose his son. He doesn't lose his faith. You know why? Because he believes that whatever God has promised, God is capable of doing. We see parents who have lost children, but they still faithfully serve the Lord instead of turning their back on God. It's not because they're not hurt. It's not because there's not pain. The reason they do that is because they believe that whatever God has promised, he's capable of doing. What has he promised you? What are you holding on to? What has he promised that he's already made good on? I don't know about the rest of you, but he promised me that I wouldn't be addicted anymore. He promised me that I wouldn't be uh, an adulterer. He promised me that I could be a faithful husband. He promised me that I could preach his word. He promised me that I could be a father when I didn't have one growing up. And he's already made good on those promises. So what makes me think he won't make good on this one? What makes me think he won't make good? So let's look at his part. First Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. Say again. Begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When you've been begotten again, what that means is that you've been born again. To an inheritance, an incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away and it's reserved in heaven for you. We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed, revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired. They've searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 11. Amazing what God says here about your future and about my future. Verse 3, he's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is alive. We don't serve a dead God. We don't come to a funeral like we talked about last week. I ain't here for a funeral to, to mourn over the death of Jesus. I have a living hope. I come to praise the living God who rose from the dead and waits for me in heaven and is preparing a place for me. I have an inheritance, right? I'm no longer the child of just uh, Nate and Peaches, right, that struggled and separated and didn't leave an inheritance for me. I have a new father. I've been begotten again to a living hope, and now I have an inheritance of righteousness and destiny and eternity, and I can have a new lineage that I lay for my children. That's what he says here. I've been begotten again to a living hope. Verse 5 says, we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. You know what that means? It ain't up to you to stay saved. It says that once you give your life to the Lord, once you put your faith in Jesus, you become kept by his power 
You can't escape if you wanted to, right? That's why with the prodigal son, he had to come back home to the father. He couldn't have stayed gone even if he wanted to. If our salvation was dependent upon us continuing to be good, nobody would be saved. It's important for you to understand that your faith is what, is what activates your salvation, right? You have to believe in Jesus and what he said. But from that very moment, you are in his hand, and he will not let you go. He loves you so much, he'll never let you go. Jesus, before he went back to heaven, before he was crucified, he was praying to the Father. And you know what he told the Father? He said, of everyone that you gave me, I've lost none. I've lost none. And this is the same Peter that said, I don't know him a few hours later. I'm not one of him. He's not my Lord and he's not my Savior. Right? But Jesus said, they're in my hand. I've lost none. What an amazing thing. We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Verse 6 and 7. Now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, Though it is tested by fire, that it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What this means is when you're going through it, it's just for a little while, and it's part of God's plan for your life. A lot of us think that when we come to the Lord, right, that everything's going to be peaches and cream. It's not. It's still going to be hard. You're still going to struggle. You're still going to fall. You're still going to make bad decisions. The enemy is still going to attack you. Things that you thought were going to be restored are not going to be restored right away. And God says, prepare for this. You know why? He says, it's just for a little while. I'm just testing your faith. It's like gold. It comes out of the mountain. It's got a bunch of impurities in it, right? A bunch of non-gold in it. And what do we have to do to purify it? We put it through the fire. And all that is perishable, all that is not gold, will wither away and be burned away and die. And you'll have this clump of gold, pure solid gold left over. But God is saying the same is true for you and I. There's a bunch of things in our life that have to be burned away. And the only way to do that is for him to put us through the fire. And he says, don't worry about it. Listen, now for a little while, if need be. I love the if need be. You know what that means? He says, if you want to lay it down yourself, I won't put you through the fire. But if you want to hold on to it, get ready. I'm about to turn it up. That's why repentance is such an opportunity. When you know something's wrong in your life, that's how I am. I'm like, oh, Lord, let me help me lay this down because I know what's going to happen. I've been in the fire before. I want to lay it down on my own, Lord. Help us, Lord. Finally, verse 9 said that I am and you are receiving the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. When we talk about living beyond the grave now, what verse 9 means is this. In this process of putting our faith in Christ, God holding us with his power, us going through trials and tribulations, right, knowing that it's perfecting us and purifying us, it says that when you do this, right now, you are receiving the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. What that means is you don't have to wait to get into the grave to start living beyond the grave. You don't have to wait until uh, you're at a funeral service and you're the one in the casket and, and we're trying to see who's going to show up. Is the Lord going to open the gates and welcome you in or is the grim reaper going to use you to get others? What God is saying is why would you wait for that? Why would you wait till the end? He said, if you do what I'm telling you to do, you receive the end of your salvation, your salvation of your soul right now. However old you are right now, however much life you have left in you, you can have your salvation now. You can have that process of living beyond the grave now. Then he says, verse 10, that salvation that we're talking about this morning, 
He says that prophets have looked into it. They've inquired and they've searched and they've prayed and they've asked God. And he says that it's coming to you guys. It's coming to me. With the time that I have left with you guys this morning, I want to tell you a story about two prophets. It connects with living beyond the grave and it shows how what they were seeking and what they were proclaiming to be true, how it really has come to us. The definition of a prophet, if you don't know, is a person who speaks by divine inspiration or has the interpreter through whom the will of God is expressed. So God speaks through them, writes through them. That's what makes them a prophet, right? 700 years before Jesus came, read what Isaiah had to say about the crucifixion. That's prophetic, right? He says that he's going to be denied. He's going to go like a lamb before its shear, silent to the cross, right? That he's going to shed his blood 700 years before, which means it's prophetic. It hadn't happened yet. All the prophets in the Old Testament prophesied about a coming kingdom and a coming king. If you read it, it's preparing you for Jesus to come. John the Baptist is the last prophet. Why? Because after John the Baptist, Jesus came. There's no reason to tell about a coming king when he's here. He's arrived. So let's start with the one who was being prophesied about, before we go back to these two prophets, let me tell you what Jesus says once he's here about living beyond the grave. In Mark chapter 12, verse 26, this is what Jesus says. He says, concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So imagine Jesus is talking to these church folk, and they're saying, we don't believe in resurrection. We believe we're going to live the best life we can here, and we're going to get to know God, and then we're going to die, and we're going to go off into oblivion. And Jesus says, listen for a second. People rise. The word says, the prophet Moses says, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, he ain't the God of the dead. What he's saying is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although they went into a, a grave here, they're alive. Right now, they're alive. I thought about it in prayer for this message. I thought about it with the prophets that we're going to be talking about, that even I, as your pastor, sometimes I make this mistake, right? I love these stories. I love how they minister to us. I love what it teaches me about the character and the love of God. But sometimes I forget that these people are still alive. We're talking about living beyond the grave. And when you read about Moses, Moses is alive, church. When you read about Isaiah, Isaiah is alive, church. People make the mistake, I don't want to get too far into this, but that's why some religions tell you to pray to the saints, because they're alive. It's better to know that they're alive, but we don't have to take it so far to pray to them. Jesus is good enough. <laughs> so the story I want to tell you guys about this morning is about two prophets, one named Elijah and the other named Elisha. I'm going to read from 2 Kings chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Amen. If you're with me, say Amen. Say amen. All right, if you didn't say it, you ain't with it. Try it one more time. If you're with me, say amen. We're going to make it. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elisha said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. 
But Elijah said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? So he answered, yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took off his mantle, rolled it up, struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? Elisha said, please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, you have asked a hard thing, but nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire, and it separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elisha that had fallen from him, went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Then they said to him, look now, there are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. He said, you shall not send anyone. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send him. Therefore, they sent 50 men. They searched for three days, but they did not find him. When they came back to him, for he had stayed in Jericho, he said to them, did I not say to you, don't go? Then the men of the city said to Elisha, please notice the situation of this city is pleasant. As my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground is barren. He said, bring me a new bowl, put salt in it. So they brought it to him. He went out to the source of the water, cast in the salt there and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Then he went up from there to Bethel. You guys know that I love to do this, read a whole bunch of scripture to you. But what a story about Elisha and Elijah. They started their journey, and they ended their journey at Bethel. Say Bethel. 
Remember that Jesus, just a few minutes ago, he said that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that they're alive because he's the God of the living, not the dead. Bethel was the first place that God took Abraham. Where our faith starts, the father of our faith is Abraham. God comes to Abraham when he's still Abram and says, leave your people, get out of your city, get away from what you're involved in, come out, I'm going to take you to a new place. You know the first place he went to? Bethel. Very first place. And it says that Abraham built an altar there to praise God. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob, right? Jacob left his father's house for the first time. Same thing, coming out of who he used to be, coming out from under his covering, going to find his own place with the Lord. And you know where he ends up? Bethel. He's struggling. It says that he sleeps on a rock. Listen, this is Genesis 28.10. Jacob went out from Beersheba, went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. He took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he laid down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached all the way to heaven. There the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, and you'll spread abroad to the west and the east, the north and the south. You and your seed and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have spoken to you. We talked about the promises. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jacob arose early in the morning, took the stone that he put at his head, set it up as a pillar. He poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel. So listen, Bethel is the house of God, and it is the gate of heaven where the angels of God ascend and descend. It's the house of God. It's the place you meet God. It's the place you first encounter God. It's the place you first see God for who he is, and God keeps bringing people back to Bethel. Jesus is calling disciples, and he calls a man named Nathaniel, which I think is a great name, those of you that don't know, it's my first name, calls Nathaniel to be his disciple in John 1.51, listen to what Jesus says, he said to him, most assuredly I say to you, Nathaniel, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I can't, I can't help it, listen. When Jacob sleeps in Bethel and he sees the heavens open and he sees the ladder go to heaven and angels ascending and descending and he says, this is the house of God, this is the gate of heaven. When Jesus says to Nathaniel, listen, now that you belong to me, you're going to see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon me. He's saying, I am the house of God and I am the gate of heaven. You need to meet me. This is where you meet God. This is where you see him for who he is. This is where heaven is opened up to you, and you cannot get into heaven without me because I'm the gate. That's why he says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. I'm the gate, he says. Elijah and Elisha, they leave from, from, uh, from Bethel, right? And he's testing him. Elijah has a disciple named Elisha, and he's testing him. Just stay here. 
Oh, you don't have to come on outreach, bro. It's all right. I'll catch you next week. Oh, no, don't worry about it, man. Hey, sis, don't worry. Tuesday night, we have women's Bible study. If you can't make it, it's all right. Don't, don't even worry about it. Just go ahead and stay here. Listen, Elijah is saying that to Elisha. He's saying, just stay here. It's all right. Just stay here. You'll be fine. But Elisha is smarter than that. He knows this is where I connect with God. I'm not leaving your side. And he followed him. They go on from Bethel to Jericho. <clears throat> Jericho represents the place where there's no victory without a supernatural move of God. We have a Jericho conference coming up in August. We do it every year. Jericho represents what you cannot do on your own, and God has to do it or there's no hope for you. Everybody has a Jericho. Everybody has one. Everybody has at least one. We all have the same one, and then we all have like an additional different one. <laughs> if you think you don't, believe me, yours is big. Listen, Joshua chapter 5, it's coming up to Jericho. Joshua cannot have victory over the city. It says, it came to pass when, Jer when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, no, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. This is Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. Jesus comes not just as a lamb. He comes as the, the commander of the Lord's army with his sword drawn, right? He comes and he says, no, I, I, I'm here to fight the battle you can't fight. You've been winning some battles on your own, but Jericho, you have no hope unless I come and win for you. When I say that we all have the same Jericho and then we have other ones, the same Jericho we all have is the fight for our salvation and for eternity. You cannot win that on your own. None of you are good enough, and I'm not good enough. None of us can make up for the things that we've done. Unless Jesus does a supernatural work and saves us and forgives us, there's no hope for us in that Jericho. If we don't go from Bethel to Jericho and bow down before God like Joshua did, guess what? We die. Listen. Elijah and Elisha started at Bethel, and it's like, oh, God, you're real. I saw the heavens open. You revealed to me who you are. I got to see you. That's amazing. But Elijah and Elisha had to go from Bethel to Jericho, which means not only do we see you for who you are and we know how amazing you are, now we also have come to the place where if you don't help us, there's no hope for us. There's a lot of people who have seen Jesus for who he is and how amazing he is, but they will not come to him and say, if you don't help me, there's no hope for me. You see why you have to go from Bethel to Jericho? Many of us are still hanging out at Bethel just in awe of God, but there's no dying. There's no coming to him and kneeling at his feet and saying, God, if you don't help me, there's no hope for me. Back to our story, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. Came to pass, the Lord was about to take Elijah. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, I won't leave you. They went down to Bethel. The sons of the prophets came to Elisha and said to him, do you not know that the Lord will take your master from you today? He said, yes, I know. Keep silent. And Elisha said to him, stay here, please, for the Lord sent me onto Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. We've got to go on from Bethel to Jericho. And if you thought that that was the end, it's not. It's hard enough to go from Bethel to Jericho, and then Elijah says to his disciple, we haven't gone far enough. He says, we have to go further. Verse 5, 
They were at Jericho. They came to him. Do you not know the Lord's going to take away your master? He said, yes, keep silent. He said, stay here. The Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. Say Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of prophets stood facing them at a distance. While the two of them stood by the Jordan, Elisha took off his mantle, rolled it up, struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, that the two of them crossed over on dry land. The Jordan represents baptism. The Jordan is where people were baptized. If you read through the New Testament, it says John the Baptist was at the Jordan baptizing people. Why? It's not good enough just to come to Bethel and see God for who he is and realize that he exists and realize that there are angels and demons and realize that there is heaven and hell and realize that you're going to spend eternity somewhere. You have to go on from Bethel to Jericho and say, God, I'm trying to get in, but I can't. I'm trying to be saved, but it doesn't work. I'm trying to change my behavior on my own, and I've had no success. I'm at a Jericho. Lord, will you help me? Will you give me entrance? Will you open the gates? And then Jesus says, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I came to do. I'll open the gates for you. But here's the thing. In order to walk in, you've got to be baptized. You can't just have me open the gates and you tiptoe on in like, thanks, Lord. No, 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 no. The only way in is to die. I've got to give you new life. Remember it said you've been begotten again? You don't get to be born again unless you die. Jordan is the place of baptism. Matthew 3.13, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. That's why he's a prophet. He understands that he has to be baptized, right? He says, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him, and when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Jesus says, listen. It's got to be done. It's got to be fulfilled. The people in 2017 in that church in Brea, they need to see that the same way I was baptized, they need to be baptized. They need to see that the same way I had to come to the Jordan, right, and be completely submitted and submerged, they have to come to the Jordan and be completely submitted and submerged. And then when they're raised in newness of life, the Holy Spirit will descend and alight upon them too. John's saying, I don't need to do this. I need to be baptized by you. He says, oh, no, we need to do this. We go from Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan. Any one of those that are missing, and this is where we end up. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm laying it out for you what has to happen. Paul says this in Romans 6.3. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also should be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. If we died with Christ, we believe that we'll live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, he dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body 
that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. That's what baptism means. We're now alive from the dead. So many of us need to be spiritually baptized. And when we do that, we'll be willing to run to our physical baptism. You'll be looking for water like, Lord, please. Now that I've been spiritually baptized and I understand that I had to go from Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan, I've been baptized, I'm done with my old life, I'm not going to let sin rule and reign in my life, I'm going to be raised in newness of life, not in my own power, but the power of God, it will not be hard to say, when would you like to be baptized in some water, in a pool, at the beach? You'll be asking for it, you'll be running for it. You want on the outside what has happened on the inside. So I'm going to close with this this morning. It feels like the most fitting verse to end our series on living beyond the grave. Now that Elijah and Elisha, they've been to and through Bethel, they've been to and through Jericho, and now they've been to and through the Jordan. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11 says this, then it happened. Say, then it happened. Isn't that great? (laughs) If you've been waiting for some stuff to happen, You've been through all these places? (laughs) Then it happened, as they continued on and they talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. See, the promise that God makes is that because of Jesus, we get to go to heaven. That's the promise, that, that you don't have to worry about dying You don't have to worry about dying and going to hell. Because of Jesus, and if you're willing to go through what he tells you you have to go through to come to him, you get to go to heaven. Remember, a prophet, someone who speaks by divine inspiration and tells us what's going to happen. The story that we read in 2 Kings about Elijah and what he's talking about with his disciple Elisha, to me it just clearly expresses what the will of God is for his disciple, and it clearly expresses what the will of God is for you and I. He's about to leave his disciple. He knows God. He's filled with the spirit of God. He's about to be taken to heaven. You know what he's thinking? I've got to tell this young man how to get here. I've got to tell him what it takes. He's been walking with me. He's been seeing things. He's not who he used to be, but he has to know. And he tells him, we're going to Bethel. We're going to Jericho, and we're going to the Jordan. And then he's a prophet, and the reason it's in the Bible is so that we can know what we have to do to get there. Elijah saw it. He knew it already. He believed it. He proclaimed it, and then he experienced it. In an instant, he was taken to heaven, and he began living beyond the grave. He didn't even experience death. He didn't experience it. He never went to the grave. He never had to to suffer that, that body breaking down on him. Straight to heaven. Jesus says this, John chapter 14, verse 2. Jesus says, in my father's house, there's many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm not a liar, he says, right? He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go, you know, and you know the way. I can hear Jesus, I can hear his spirit definitely speaking to me and speaking to us, but if you go back to Elijah and Elisha, can't you hear him saying that to him? Hey, man, I prepared a place for you. I prepared a place for you. He says, come on home. 
sends a chariot of fire to pick this man up because he understood Bethel, Jericho, and the Jordan. And he said, that's it. It's time for you to come on home. You don't have to worry about death. You haven't lived your life in fear. You've lived your life with power and with confidence and proclaiming the truth about who I am. He says, the place that I prepared for you, come on. It's ready for you. Come on home. Worship team, would you come? Would the rest of us just stand for a minute? And as you think about where you are with the Lord right now, Let's just bow our heads. Allow me to pray for just a moment about Bethel, about Jericho, and about the Jordan. It's a place that we've come to, uh, to encounter God. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You've come whenever it was and you, you met God. You were, you were introduced to him. Somebody told you a story about Jesus. Something has happened that would even lead you into a building like this where you've come to some type of understanding or awareness about God, about creation, about the need of a Savior, why somebody would have to come and lay their life down, why somebody would have to bleed to wash us clean. The question this morning is, after that, have you been... Have you been to Jericho? Have you been to Jericho? Come to that place where you say, Lord, I can go no further than I've come. I've tried my best. I've tried my hardest. This is as good as it gets for me, and I know it's not good enough. I had victory over this. I had victory over that. I stopped certain things in my life. I've gone in a new direction. I'm going to church consistently. But yet, the one thing that you need most, which is to be born again and to have new life and to have your sins cast as far as the east is from the west and to really start over, not to cover things up, not to try to just make a turn and go in a new direction, but to really start over. You're at that Jericho and you've realized, oh, Lord, without you, there's no hope. There's no victory here. Jesus says, the answer is baptism. The answer is to lay down your life completely. Don't wade into this water. Don't swim around until your your body feels comfortable in the water. You've got to go all in. You've got to lay down your old life. The only way to pick up your new life is to lay down your old life. I promise you that the same way he showed up for Joshua and he had his sword drawn, it wasn't to hurt Joshua, it was to defend him against his ultimate enemy, which was death. He's ready to fight for us. He already died for us. It says that the second coming, it's not the lamb, it's the lion who's coming. For everyone here in this place, the entrance is the same. You lay down your life, you put your faith in Christ, the gates swing wide open, and he says, come into the place that I prepared for you. He starts that now with every head bowed, with every eye closed. If you're there, if you're at Jericho, if God's calling you to be baptized, if God's calling you to go all in and just give your life to him, man, don't wait any longer. We saw it this morning that anything could happen, no matter how old you are, how young you are. The last thing you want to hear 
is the enemy saying, it's too late. It's too late. The time is now. You're not saved and you want to be, not because I want you to be, but because you want to be and you know you need to be. It's a simple decision. If that's you, would you raise your hand? You're not saved, but you want to be. Amen. I see you, sis. I see you, brother. I see you guys. 